Congregation, turn with me for a moment to 1 John 5, 1 John 5, the very first line of that chapter, 1 John 5, verse 1. And there we read a very foundational truth of Scripture. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You know, boys and girls, last week we dealt with the name Jesus, which means Savior. Tonight we're going to focus on the name Christ. And here the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Whosoever believeth that that Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, that he is the one, Appointed and anointed by the Father to accomplish a complete salvation. He that believes in him. And obviously, the apostle is implying saving faith, not just an outward historical faith. He said, he is born of God. And so what this very clearly states, that it is faith in Christ Faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus as the Christ, is the only reliable biblical evidence of the new birth. Where that's lacking, the evidence of the new birth is lacking. And so, congregation, how can it be otherwise? Because what happens in the new birth? In the new birth, the Spirit cuts the sinner off from Adam our first father, and grafts us into Christ. From that very moment, that new life flows out of Christ. And so what this is simply saying, that the life that originates in Christ is always attracted toward Christ. So congregation, it is faith in Christ alone which is the ultimate evidence of the work of the Spirit of Christ. All religious experience that does not culminate in faith in this Christ is not the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's not how many tears I've shed. It's not how long and deep my conviction has been. All of that may be very true. But if all of that does not bring us to Christ... We lack the biblical evidence that we are truly born of God. And what John is doing, though, he's he's really echoing what Christ said in John 5. So now we turn to John 5, and let's hear what Christ says regarding this matter. John 5, by the same author. John 5, verse 24, and here Christ is speaking, verily, verily. So that means in Greek it says, amen, amen. So that means Christ is drawing the attention of his audience that what he is about to say is profoundly important. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life 
and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And so, congregation, my question for you is, what do you think of this Christ? What do you think of this Christ of the Scriptures? The Christ, the Anointed One. Is this Christ precious to you? Is your heart drawn to this Christ? Has this Christ become for you the altogether lovely one? Because that's how the Spirit works. And so tonight we're privileged to focus on that precious name of Christ. So let's turn to Lord's Day 12 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12. We'll read the entire Lord's Day, but because there is so much substance here, um, I will expound this one question at a time. So this evening we will deal with question and answer 31. Next week, the Lord willing, with question and answer 32. But we will read the entire Lord's Day. Question 31. Why is he called Christ? That is anointed. The answer He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. And so we're going to speak about what it means to believe in Christ, because what we are doing, of course, what the Catechism is doing, it is expounding for us each article of the Apostles' Creed, which we have just confessed together. And so faith in Christ, first of all, as our chief prophet and teacher. Secondly, as our only high priest. And thirdly, as our eternal king. And so And I think our older children, of course, will know that already, no doubt from catechism instruction and having learned it in school, that the name Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. And both mean the exact same thing. Both mean the anointed one. And so Christ is the anointed one of God. And our children also know from Bible history that throughout the Old Testament, three kinds of people were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Think of Elijah, who was specifically told to go and anoint Elisha. Priests were anointed in order for them to begin their formal ministry. And kings were anointed. We know of several cases where kings were anointed. And they were always anointed with oil. And oil in the Bible is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. And what what that communicated to the people of Israel, that that man, that prophet, or that priest, or that king, 
had been set apart by God himself, appointed by God to a specific task, to a specific office. And the anointing of oil symbolized the fact that God would grant that individual whom he had appointed, he would grant that individual the ministry of the Spirit to enable him to carry out the work to which he had been appointed. And so two words belong together here, appointed and anointed. Appointed by, those who were appointed by God were also anointed by God. They were set apart by God and they were enabled by God to carry out the special task which he had for them, namely to be a prophet and a priest and a king. But all of that, of course, was but a foreshadowing of the one who would come in the fullness of time to be the anointed one, to be the Christ. Now, there were several Old Testament individuals who held two offices. Think, of course, of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. Uh, we think of David, who was a, a prophet and a king. But there was never anyone who held all three of these offices. And we know that in the Old Testament, many of the men who were appointed and anointed by God, many of them held that office very poorly. Some of them brought dishonor to that office. All of them were at best very imperfect reflections of who would come in the fullness of time. Until... The Lord Jesus Christ was born until he came into the world to be the anointed one. And so we confess with the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we considered what we call the personal name of Jesus. The name that reveals his identity. The name that unveils to us why he came into the world. The name, as we saw last week, which is really a summary of the gospel, a name that unveils God's eternal good pleasure, namely that Jehovah saves. So that's his personal name. But Christ is his title. And so we have people who have a personal name, and we also have important titles that tell us something about the work they do. And so it is with the name Christ. Christ is the official title of the Savior Jesus. And those names, they belong together so very intimately. Congregation, we could say that in those two names, Jesus Christ, the whole work of redemption is embodied. Because as Jesus, he saves us from our sin. He saves us from sin and all of its vile consequences, as we saw last week. But he, that salvation, however, congregation, that salvation is not merely negative. That salvation which Christ has accomplished does not merely remove sin and all of its vile consequences. But that salvation has a very positive objective. In other words, God's goal in saving sinners 
is to restore us to what he originally created us to be. And the word, the verb to save in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, and the word salvation clearly implies that. And the reason I emphasize that, because far too often we speak of the saving work of Christ merely from a negative perspective, focusing on what we are delivered from. The congregation Christ came to save his people unto something. And the positive objective of his redeeming work is not only to deliver us from sin and to reconcile us with God, but to restore us to what God created us to be in Adam, to restore us to be God's image bearers. That's why we need to focus on that for just a moment, congregation. Because as you will often hear me say, we cannot understand the gospel correctly. We cannot understand the work of Christ correctly unless we understand what God set out to do in man's creation. Because ultimately the goal of redemption is to restore man to what originally God made us to be. Congregation, boys and girls, you know that the Bible, for the first time, speaks about man in Genesis 1. And when God speaks about man, three times in two verses, he emphasizes that man would be that unique, unique creature that would be created in his image. A creature that would reflect the very character of the God who made him. A creature uniquely equipped by God so that God would be able to enter into a love relationship with that creature bearing his image. What does that image consist of? Three things, three components. We compare Ephesians 4, Galatians, or Colossians 3, there are two passages there. And then we, Calvin is the one who pulled that all together and said in his institutes, thus we gather that that image consisted of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. A congregation that's very significant for us to understand this. For us to understand why Christ has been anointed to be prophet, priest, and king. And so God created us in Adam, first of all, with the capability of knowing him. Knowing the very God who made us. Secondly, he created us in a right relationship with him. In righteousness. Thirdly, he created us in true holiness. He created us with the ability and desire to live a life fully devoted to him. A life in which we would reflect the very character of the God who created us. So boys and girls, let me use three simple words to help you understand what I'm trying to say here. Because I think you can remember that. And I hope that your parents will review this with you. So God created us with the ability 
to know him, to love him, and to serve him. Try to remember that. To know him, to love him, and to serve him. And so it was before Adam fell. He knew God. He grew in his knowledge. He delighted in God's revelation to him in the cool of the day. And he loved the God whom he knew. And the more he knew of him, the more he loved him. And out of that resulted a life wholeheartedly devoted to the God whom he knew and whom he loved. And those three belong inseparably together. That's why also the faculties of our soul match perfectly with God's original design. For what are the faculties of our soul? We have a mind, we have affections, and we have a will. Think about it. We have a mind, we have affections, and we have a will. Three faculties that enable us to fulfill the purpose for which we were made. So it was with Adam, with a mind capable of knowing my Maker, affections that enable me to love my Maker, and a will that is inclined to obey my Maker and to serve my Maker. So boys and girls, remember this. To know, to love, and to serve God. And I would say to you, congregation, that's the ultimate goal and the ultimate outcome of redemption. So in glory, God's children, God's redeemed people will forever grow in their knowledge of God. They will forever grow in their love for God and they will forever serve God. For that's the purpose for which we were made. And all of that was so dramatically destroyed as a result of sin. When we lost God's image. And so now what are we as fallen human beings? We still have those three faculties. We still have a mind. We still have affections, emotions. And we still have a will. But all three of them have become utterly corrupt. So rather than desiring to know God, we're only interested in ourselves. Rather than loving our Maker, as fallen creatures, we are lovers of ourselves. And instead of obeying our Maker, we're only interested in doing our will. And so by way of these three things, congregation, you can actually examine yourself tonight. Because that ultimately defines who the people of God are. So when we are born of God, that's how we begin. When we become a new creature in Christ, that image begins to function again. So what is a child of God? How can you know today whether you are a child of God, whether you are a living soul? Ask yourself this question. Do you have a deep yearning to know your God, to know more of Him? Can you resonate with what Paul said? Oh, that I might know him, that I might know more of him. This thirsting after the living God. Do you love? Do you love this God? That's the beauty of how these faculties interact. 
Because we not only know God, no, God made us. And by grace, again, that we, we love the God we know. And the more we know Him, the more we love Him. And the more we love Him, the more inclined we will be to obey Him, to do His will. That's how we can examine ourselves even tonight. And now Christ, that name, precious name, Christ, the Anointed One, directly relates to this congregation. And so why is it that Christ is anointed to be prophet, priest, and king? He is anointed as prophet in order to restore the knowledge of God. He is appointed as priest in order to restore righteousness, in order to restore us in a right relationship with God. And he is anointed as king in order to restore holiness, in order to restore us to become a holy human being, a son and daughter of Adam, who by the grace of God again begin to reflect the character of their God. So let me repeat. As prophet, he restores knowledge. As priest, he restores righteousness. And as king, he restores holiness. Now let's look at the language of the catechism. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he is ordained or appointed of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost, first of all, to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. What a beautiful statement that is. What a beautiful summary this is of the teaching of God's word regarding Christ's prophetic ministry. So let me again explain to you what we mean by a prophet. And the reason we need to repeat that is because too often we think of a prophet as someone who foretells the future. And that's in a way understandable because when you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, it often contained also predictions about the future which have been fulfilled. But let me emphasize again, what is a prophet? A prophet is a spokesman of God. A prophet is a man who speaks on God's behalf. A prophet is someone who communicates what God directs him to communicate. And so it is the great work of Christ to be God's communicator. It is the great work of Christ to reveal to us who God the Father is. It is Christ who uniquely, as the eternal Son of God, has been appointed to do precisely that. Because it is Christ, as the Son of God, who dwells within the very bosom of his Father, who dwells within the very heart of his Father. And so, therefore, he literally knows the heart of his Father from the inside out, and therefore is so fully equipped and so fully qualified to be the revealer of what lives in his Father's heart and to speak on his Father's behalf that so uniquely fits his identity as the eternal Son of God. 
The Gospel of John tells us, as you know, that he is the eternal word of God. That means that he is the eternal expression of who God is. He is the eternal revelation. So it fits entirely with who he is. That he should be the one revealing to us, to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. That's why the entire Bible is ultimately his work. It's by his spirit that the authors of the Bible have been inspired. He's the one behind it all. It is the eternal living Word of God, the eternal Logos, who has been moving all through history to see to it that the Word of God would be recorded in written form. Why? In order that through the written Word of God, we might learn about the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And so, congregation, whenever we think and speak of God communicating with man, it's always in the person of His Son. All God's dealings with man are in His Son. All His communication to us is by means of His Son, who is the eternal and living Word of God. So He is the one whom we meet in the Old Testament, when we have those theophanies, those appearances of God, where God would appear in the form of a man. He appeared to Abraham in the tents in memory. And he appeared to Joshua as the, the captain of the Lord's host. And he appeared to him at the burning bush and throughout, throughout the Old Testament. In all those Old Testament theophanies, it was Christ unveiling the very heart of God, revealing divine truth before that truth was recorded in written form. It is Christ who is the author of the entire structure of all the sacrifices, the the ceremonial law. It is Christ who by His Spirit moved the prophets of the Old Testament. It is Christ ultimately who is the author of the entire canon of the Old Testament Scriptures. That's why a moment before he died, that's why he was capable of scanning the entire body of written truth to know that there was one prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And he said, if the Scriptures might be fulfilled, I thirst And, of course, in the New Testament era, we have the wonder of the Incarnation. John 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now the eternal living Word of God assumed our human nature and literally walked among men. As you know, He said, If you have seen Me, you have seen My Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Of course, that ministry continued through the apostolic ministries. 
And take your Bibles for a moment. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, which beautifully summarizes all of that. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. There we read, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. There you have it. The word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us and here it comes and we pray you in Christ's stead. We pray you in Christ's name being ye reconciled to God. And so it was the same Christ who moved the prophets of the Old Testament who inspired the apostles to record the word of God in written form until we have the complete of Holy Scriptures. And then we have this profound statement in John 20, verse 31. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And is that Christ, as the great prophet of his church, as the revealer of God, as the revealer of the heart of God, of the truth of God, it is that Christ the moving force until this day, raising up his servants to speak on his behalf so that the word of God is proclaimed. And so Paul in Romans 10 verse 15 therefore says this about the ministry, how beautiful he says are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And Christ said just before he died, that when the Spirit would come, he would be the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And so Christ, Christ is the great communicator of all divine truth. And the great purpose of all that revelation is that we might learn who God is in him. That we might learn that the God against whom we have sinned, the God whom we have offended, that that God has purposed eternally a plan of redemption whereby we, fallen, guilty sinners, whereby we could be reconciled to God. And that's why we can say that the prophetic ministry of Christ will always bring us to his priestly ministry. So by way of his prophetic ministry, Christ literally makes room for his priestly ministry. He will so instruct us and he will so teach us that we realize not only who God is, but who we have become in Adam. What it means to be a sinner. What it means to be undone, to be under the wrath of God. All of that we need to know, we need to understand. Shall we ever understand the need for his priestly ministry? I read in one commentary this afternoon this simple statement. It says, so in other words, Christ 
will always lead to Christ. And Jesus will always lead to Jesus. And that's precisely it. And so Christ's objective is that our understanding of who God is and who we are will make us realize that we stand in need of his priestly ministry as well. Because not only is it God's goal that we would know him, but it is God's desire. That's the whole goal of redemption, is to bring us back into a love relationship with himself. And that's the essence of the priesthood congregation. The essence of the priesthood is to have a loving relationship with the God of redemption. And so we're inclined to think that priesthood means sacrifice. And yes, in the Old Testament, that was true. But there was a reason why sacrifices had to be brought. Because without sacrifices, without the shedding of blood pointing to the finished work of Christ... God could not have a relationship with his sinful people. And yet that was his desire. That's why God instituted that entire structure of sacrifices. God not only redeemed his people from Egypt, but it's very, very clear from the book of Leviticus that his desire was to bring this people near to himself, to have a love relationship with his redeemed people And so the focal point of the priesthood is on fellowship and communion with God. The focal point of the priesthood is to have a a real functioning love relationship with our Maker. And all of that was true before the fall. And all of that was lost. That's why Adam and Eve had to be expelled from the garden. God could no longer have a relationship with a sinful creature that had lost his image. But the amazing reality is, as I said this morning, that before he expelled them, he unveiled this gospel to them already, pointing them to the fullness of time when the seed of the woman would come to be God's appointed priest in order that through him, That broken relationship could be restored fully by him. And that's, of course, the beauty of the whole ceremonial law. Oh, that sometimes we may think that it's tedious to read it, but it's not tedious. If we begin to understand the symbolism in there, we get this amazing picture of a God who went out of his way to do everything to make a real love relationship with his people possible on the basis of shed blood. That's why there was the morning and evening sacrifice. That was God's daily object lesson, whereby he taught the people of Israel the essential truths of the gospel. So when Paul in Galatians 3 talks about the law being a schoolmaster unto Christ, he's talking about the ceremonial law. He's saying the whole design, the whole design of that ceremonial law was to teach the people of Israel the essential truths of the gospel, to teach them that salvation is by faith in God's appointed sacrifice. Then, of course, Christ came in the fullness of time. 
Hebrews makes it clear that all of those sacrifices were meaningless apart from Christ. None of those sacrifices could accomplish true reconciliation with God. And so in the fullness of time, the Father's Son, whose great work it is and was to bring sinners back to God, He came and gave Himself to be that perfect priest and to be that perfect sacrifice. He gave Himself so that by His bloody sacrifice, God and sinners could be reconciled. God and sinners could be brought together. In Hebrews 10 verse 14, we have these well-known words, so beautiful, so precious. For by one offering, He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the rich comfort for God's children is that that sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. That sacrifice was supremely pleasing to the Father. That sacrifice was accepted by the Father. That sacrifice has been endorsed by the Father. So that in Christ, dear people of God, in Christ you have the everlasting warranty of your redemption. In Him is the warranty of your everlasting, irreversible reconciliation with God. And that's why Christ's priestly ministry continues. Because the sacrifice has been accomplished. But that did not mean that therefore his work as priest ceased because the essence of the priesthood is not bloody sacrifice. That was added in we see Galatians 3 verse 9. Wherefore then serveth the law? Wherefore then serveth the ceremonial law? It was added because of the transgressions. It's because there can be no relationship with God except on the basis of shed blood. That's why blood had to be shed. But once Christ accomplished it, he returned to heaven. And there he continues his priestly ministry on behalf of all those for whom he gave himself as a ransom. So who by the one sacrifice the catechism says he has redeemed us, that he did in the, in the fullness of time on Calvary's cross, and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. What a precious truth that is, congregation. You know what that means? That because he is there, your relationship with your heavenly Father is never in jeopardy. Your relationship with God is absolutely secure in Him. In Him. In Him, dear believer, in Him, you are in unbroken fellowship and communion with God. Even when your own prayer life falters, and it does, oh, we have our ups and downs. God's children struggle with that. There are times where we can pray freely. And there are times where our sentences come out backwards, where we don't know what to say and how to pray. What a comfort it is to know that we have a high priest who has gone on high and who ever liveth to make intercession for us. 
a high priest who by his very presence presents himself and all of his merits to his Father, always pleading his finished work. A high priest who, t- who takes our poor and feeble prayers and brings them into the presence of his Father, translates them, mixes them with his merits and presents them to the Father. Oh, an interceding high priest who is the warranty that nothing, as Paul says in Romans, nothing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because he is there. He is there representing you He is there pleading his merits. He is there interceding for you. He is there to preserve the salvation that he has merited for you. And so what is the blessed result of Christ's priestly ministry? Is union and communion with God. That's why John could write in 1 John 1 verse 3, truly, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth it is to know that that priesthood is an everlasting priesthood. And that's true for all three of the offices of Christ. He will forever be our prophet. He will forever be our priest. He will forever be our king. Also in glory. It is Christ as our great prophet who will lead his people deeper and deeper into the heart of God. As our priest, he will keep us in constant fellowship and communion with God. And as our king, he will forever govern us in the way of perfect holiness. And then finally, also to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. We will say more of this next week. Let me just be brief here. The point is this, that the people whom Christ reconciles to God, he also governs by his word and spirit. And so the the fundamental truth of the Bible is that God's reconciled people will also be an obedient people. Because ultimately, that is the fulfillment of what we were created for, is to live a life devoted to the God who made us. And so obedience is the ultimate outcome of that redeeming work. I quoted Matthew 7 this morning. That's why Jesus makes that connection. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Thereby saying, you don't belong to me unless you are a doer of my Father's will. Or to use theological terms, there can be no justification without sanctification. 
Justification is the means whereby we are reconciled to God. Sanctification is that process whereby we begin to fulfill the very purpose for which we were reconciled to God. And so the Christ who teaches us is prophet. The Christ who keeps us in fellowship with God through his ongoing priestly ministry is the Christ who also governs us by his word and spirit. And of course, those two belong inseparably together. The spirit of the word never operates except by the very word he has inspired. It's that combination. And so Christ, the exalted Christ, by his spirit, uses his word to govern us, to direct our lives. That's why it's so important for us to be in that word. And he defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation. What a beautiful statement that is. He defends us because the Christian has to function in a very hostile environment. We talked about it this morning already. An environment that conspires against him. Those three enemies, Satan, the world, and our own wretched flesh, who relentlessly, relentlessly assault the people of God. And if it were not for Christ defending us, if it were not for Christ upholding us and sustaining us, we would perish in that warfare. But the Christ, who has loved you with an everlasting love, who gave himself for you, is committed to preserve that salvation with an unwavering commitment. He defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. And that parathetical statement is a beautiful commentary about who Christ is. Christ is not a Christ who allows you to experience the bare, bare minimum. No, he is a Christ who wants you to live in the enjoyment of that salvation that he has accomplished for you. It's the Christ who said, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. And so we have considered this precious Christ, God's anointed one, anointed to be our prophet and our priest and our king. Oh, what do you think of that Christ? That's how we began. Dear believer, you who profess the name of Christ, do you realize that in him, Everything you need is found. Through him, you may grow in the knowledge of your Father. Through him, you may live in fellowship and communion with your Heavenly Father. Through him, you may live a life that honors your Heavenly Father. Is that your desire? Is that your life? Or do you still not know this Christ? Maybe you know of him. 
are there still those in our midst for whom this name is just a name, for whom this Christ has not yet become precious? Oh, I urge you with all the love of my heart to take refuge to this Christ, this Christ who is still in the business of accomplishing his Father's good pleasure, this Christ who continues to give us the ministry of his word, this Christ who unveils to us through his word who God is, but also that we need him in order to be reconciled to God. Oh, this is the Christ who was offered to us in the gospel by God the Father who freely offers that Christ to us without money and without price. That Christ who is so willing, so ready to save the vilest sinner. That Christ who will never turn away a sinner that comes to him. But God forbid that we would meet this Christ as our judge. Because he will come. It will be the Christ who will be the judge of the world. Oh, that none of us would appear before him and acknowledge him for the first time. Because every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, seek him now. Seek him today. And dear believer, oh, look to this Christ Abide in him, that through him you might know God more and love him more and serve him more, so that through him you will fulfill the very purpose for which God has redeemed you, the God who has loved you with an everlasting love and therefore has drawn you with cords of loving kindness. And so I send you home with that profound question. Having heard all of this, what do you think of this Christ? Amen. Our faithful God, we humbly thank thee for the privilege of having been in thy house today. To know that the prophetic ministry of Christ is still continuing. And Lord, we have heard of him tonight. We have heard of his wonderful name. We have heard of his wonderful offices for the great work that he does to make sinners partakers of that redemption that he secured in the fullness of time. And Lord, may we examine our own hearts in this evening hour whether this Christ has become precious to our soul whether this Christ has become for us our all and in all. And Lord, should there be any among us who do not yet know him, oh, that they would seek him today, while he still proffers peace and pardon. Oh, that sinners would hear the voice of the gospel when we as thy servants, as ambassadors of Christ, beseech sinners to be reconciled with God. Remember us as we go into another week. Bless the labor of our hands. Keep us safely. Bless our children and our young people. We pray for a good evening together as we will spend time with our young people as well. And forgive us our sins. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name alone.
Amen.